Good morning. <clears throat> Excuse me. I always get sick in the holidays. Is that normal? That's normal, right? Your body gives up, and so you get sick. Well, well uh, welcome to Grace Prez. I need to welcome myself because uh, I also am not a regular. I hail from New Haven, Connecticut, so uh, it's great to be here again. I, I think I preach here in the summer. Um, and so we're going to be looking at a psalm, but just thinking about coming through Christmas, uh, I'm always conflicted about Christmas. I don't know what, if you love, if you absolutely adore and love Christmas, good for you. Um, I, I converted in college, and I think especially as a young Christian, I didn't want to have anything to do with it. I was like, no, I'm too good for that stuff. It's too materialistic. It's not about Jesus. So I'm going to rebel. Um, now, when you have little kids, you start to see like the wonder and the beauty of it. And you also experience moments of silence and sacredness. And so I'm not sure where I'm at exactly. I think I'm still conflicted. But I want to ask, do you think a Christian should be extravagant? Do you think God is extravagant? I'm reminded as I think about my sort of conflict of Christmas. Um, I'm reminded of G.K. Chesterton, who uh, recounts his coming to Christ story in a book called Orthodoxy, and he starts to notice that there are critics of Christianity offering opposite criticisms. He starts to notice that you have some critics who say, man, those Christians are so harsh and judgmental and self-righteous. But then he would turn around and hear other critics say things like, they're so lackadaisical when it comes to morality. All they talk about is forgiveness and grace. And then more particular to like celebration and joy, he started to notice that you have some critics saying Christians are always serious. They're always hapless. And have you heard that, that definition of a Puritan that the fear that someone somewhere might be happy? So you have some critics talking about Christianity in that way, but then you have other critics saying all they do is sing and celebrate and they seem so naive about the realities of the world. How could there be critics on both sides? Well, I think that is something of the extravagance that God wants us to uh, experience and to uh, actually adore Him with. Uh, what does it mean to be extravagant? God wants us to be extravagant, but how? And in what way? I think it's a whole new category, something that Chesterton was starting to understand, that it's joy, but it's a transcendent joy. So as we think about adoring the Christ, uh, we're going to be looking at a psalm, Psalm 45. And I'll read that for us. Please bear with me with my voice. I apologize. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. 
Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Hear, O daughter, and consider, and incline your ear. Forget your people in your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber, with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes she is led to the king, with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, we do give you praise for this day that you have set aside for worship and rest. We praise you that you are indeed worthy of the worship of all of creation. And yet you came down to be among us. We ask that you would come down now, Lord, that your spirit would speak to us, make this word come alive in our hearts and minds, that we would meet Jesus and that you would continue to conform all of us more and more into the image of his son, as you promised. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, sorry for the voice. God's providence, right? All right. This psalm, you may wonder, it's a bit of an unusual psalm, but I've come to really enjoy it and appreciate it because I think it comes as a great challenge to us. It's a psalm originally that was used probably for Solomon's wedding and then for other kings after Solomon. And so it's a psalm that, as you see, the first ten verses are adoring the king. And then adoring the bride and talking about the fruit of their marriage. And Solomon, as you may know, is the inheritor of King David's uh, kingdom. He received the promise that was given to David, which was, you will always have a son on your throne. Your kingdom will never end. And yet, we should wonder what happened to that promise because Solomon's own children, one generation after Solomon, is when the kingdom splits into north and south. So it's immediate, and then after that, basically, it's wars and conflict, and then exile for the north, about 150 years later, exile for the south, and so we're waiting, and if you are the people of God around Jesus' time, you are waiting. What happened to the promise to David? We have been, they have been waiting for 500 years, hoping for the Davidic king to come and save Israel. And so it's clear that the promise to David and then Solomon is not fulfilled yet in them. It's pointing to the real David's son, which is Jesus. Hebrews 1 takes this very psalm and applies it to the Son of God. It applies it to, to Jesus where it says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Um, and then we see, of course, throughout the New Testament, 
all of these references between Christ and the church being about marriage. And so I'm going to basically be assuming, and we can talk about it more afterwards if you want, but I'm going to basically be assuming that this psalm is primarily about Christ. That because David and Solomon did not fulfill the promise of the kingdom, that that the people of God were waiting for it to be fulfilled, it finally gets fulfilled in Christ. And Calvin says, of course we can't read this and only think of Solomon. It's not, Solomon is not enough. So when we see the fulfillment in Christ, I want us to first look at what does it mean to believe that Christ is an extravagant king? And so once we see how extravagant he is, then we're going to see what it looks like to give him extravagant praise. So extravagant king. So one, you see, uh, just in the psalm, in several different parts, you see just the description of the king. That he is filled with truth and meekness and righteousness, splendor and majesty. I love that combo, though. Truth and meekness? That is a hard thing to imagine in this, this polarized age, this post-fact, whatever age we live in, comes from outside of the world as a God of truth, and yet does it in a humble way. Christmas is a great glimpse into that. <clears throat> when I think of an extravagant king, a lot of times, especially when I work with students, I work a lot with college students, and just to help them pray, if you've heard of the ACTS acronym, ACTS, Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. It helps us sort of frame our prayer. Supplication is normally what we think prayer is, where we ask God for things. But if we start with A, adoration, that can often be the harder part. What would you say in your prayer if you have to say, you are to God? You are what? And it's really insightful when I see students almost have no idea what to say. Or they'll just start thanking God. Thank you for what you've done to me. But that's the T. Right? And here we see this scribe declaring all of these wonderful things that he sees in the king. That's a good way to start a prayer. What else would you say about God? God, you are a God of truth, meekness, and righteousness. You're a God of wonderful deeds. Your kingdom does not end. Your power and might is bigger than any other competitor in the world, right? People fall under you. He's adorned like a palace. You see all these luxurious descriptions of this palace that is meant to point us to the eternal palace, if you will. His throne does not end. And grace is poured upon your lips. Poured upon your lips. Now that phrase reminds us of Ephesians where we are given this picture of God lavishing, lavishing the riches of His grace upon us. And so again, do we think that God is extravagant? I think a lot of times I do not. I think He's kind of stingy we got to kind of figure out his how much is he going to be willing to give us? Is he going to give us a ticket to heaven to just barely make it over the threshold? But that is not the picture. 
Why do we think that? Why do we think that, do you think? I think part of it is we see our sin and we think that sin is going to have the last word. What can God possibly do with me? The grace can't be that large. Or we look in this sort of limited resourced world and think, well, surely God at least is going to be utilitarian. He's not going to be wasteful. I want to look at a few passages in the New Testament just in case you think there's this crazy guest preacher coming and he's talking about some obscure psalm and he's going off on extravagance. This is not unique to Psalm 45. Romans 10, describing God, he says, bestowing his riches upon all who call upon him. Ephesians 1, it's all over Ephesians, but I won't read the whole letter. I'll just read a few passages. Ephesians 1, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. Later, part of his prayer, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Man, I wish I could pray this way. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? Chapter 2 of Ephesians still, raised us up with him, with Jesus, seated us with Jesus in the heavenly places. Why? So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us. Chapter 3, to me though I am the very least of all the saints, his grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches. Is that the gospel? Is that what you feel like you were trying to tell your friends or your colleagues? It's the riches of grace. Later in the same chapter, still another part, another prayer, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened. Philippians 4, Colossians 1, that they may know the riches of the glory of this mystery. But it's not just Paul. We see it also in Luke 15, Jesus' parables in Luke 15, the famous chapter. He starts off with the parable of the lost sheep, right? The lost coin. The woman searches her house for the lost coin, and then he gives the famous, most famous parable of all, the parable of the two sons, or the parable of the prodigal son, which is better titled prodigal God. This riches is not a character of of my faith very often. This is hard to believe, right? I'm reminded of a of a sort of a tongue in cheek debate I had on campus with with two um, two of our interns. If any of you know the contemporary song "Reckless Love," um, most of the song quotes Luke not quotes but refers to Luke 15 as far as he talks about leaving the 99 sheep to find the one, um, talking about the prodigal son. But a lot of people, and especially these two students, because they're you know trying to be intellectual, they don't like the title. They don't like the title of the song. They don't think God's love is reckless. And I don't really, I didn't really have a dog in the fight. I just wanted to play devil's advocate because I wanted to sort of shake them up a little bit and say, isn't it though? Isn't it maybe not reckless, but extravagant? 
is it seems, and maybe it should seem reckless to us at times. Not because he's out of control. Not because he doesn't know what he's going to be doing. Okay, so don't don't leave thinking, oh, that, he's he's reckless. Don't make a big deal of that word. But the intent of it, the extravagant riches of his grace that he wants to pour upon us, should make us wonder. So we have an extravagant king that deserves extravagant praise. <clears throat> what is that supposed to look like? Well, first, I think, if we look at this psalm, we're encouraged to act like a poet. Extravagant praise is to act like a poet. That doesn't mean you've got to start writing poetry, although, touche if you can. But to realize that uh, he is self-describing himself, this is very, very unique in the Psalms. He's, he's saying, look at me, I'm like a poet. And I'm going to use all of my gifts to describe the king. And poetry is a major genre in the, in the Old and New Testaments. Not so much in the New, there's some. Some like musical stuff, and then you get some in the Revelation. But I understand poetry can be hard to read, obviously hard to write, but just to see what I mean by act like a poet, if you see the characteristics of his poetry, he's overflowing. So it's sort of like boiling over, right? Can't, can't stop himself. He's lost in wonder. He's heartfelt and passionate. There's certain words that we don't often use anymore, like splendor and majesty. It's great to read Christians of other generations and other centuries because they use words that we've lost. The sweet comfort of the gospel, to delight in communion with God, these sorts of phrases. He's also specific. He's specific. I would encourage you in your prayers to be specific. But he's also repetitive. And sometimes we can get, I think, a little too sophisticated when we don't want to repeat our prayers or repeat our songs. But the Psalms do it. And why? Why would it be important to be repetitive? Because you're just losing yourself. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. Let the redeemed of Israel say, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. Over and over and over. Can you imagine writing a love letter to your beloved? They read it once, say thanks, put it away. No, they're gonna, they're gonna wanna read it over and over and over, hopefully. Break down the words. Repeat it to themselves. Maybe even memorize it. So what is it that you bubble over with? What do you overflow with? When are you extravagant? The parables of, of treasure that Jesus gives in Matthew 13. Does this, does this describe you at all? The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding some pearl of great value, one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. And of course, part of being like a poet is also singing. And I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but why do we sing at church? And I wasn't raised in the church, so that was a very striking thing when I started to go to a church or 
like a Christian group on campus, they were singing. Some people were, God forbid, raising their hands. We don't do that in Presbyterian churches, right? It's an odd thing. And if you feel uncomfortable singing, it's okay. But why sing? Why do you think we should sing? It's the most repeated command in all of Scripture. is to sing. But that's one of those, like, facts that's kind of massaged because the song, there's 150 psalms, so it's not that helpful. I think we should sing because it's meant to get at this transcendent out of this, out of this world in a sense, um, emotion. And if I, if you show me any culture in the history of the world that has music, their music comes from their religion. It comes from the search for the transcendent. It's as if music was meant for the transcendent. And <clears throat> probably the most significant theologian of the 20th century, Karl Barth, wrote a book about Mozart called Traces of Transcendent. There's this group in West Africa, and I wish I could find the, the specific tribe, but they described converting Christianity as joining those who sing. We have something to sing about. There's a reason to sing. I'm just remembering now, there's that, there was that song that Steve Martin put together. You know, he's like a musician now. Atheist, his song basically is, Atheists Have Nothing to Sing About. And he's right. He's right. Now, we're not talking about contriving, manufacturing emotion. But I do think it's important, at least for us to ask, if we don't like to sing or if we don't like poetry, at least ask yourself why. It doesn't mean you have to turn into some kind of crazy musical fanatic. But you should ask yourself why. Why not? I think for me, when I don't like especially poetry, it's because I'm just being impatient. I just want you to just give me the point. Tell me what this is for. Come on. Bottom line it. But sometimes we need to stop. And wait. And I wish I could say this. I actually have it in my notes, but it's just not true. I'm going to try to read poetry every Sunday. It hasn't happened, but I would like to. Because it should slow us down so that we can meditate on who God is. Well, if you don't like poetry, you're probably not going to like this other example. But I think we also see in Psalm 45, we see him acting like a cheerleader. That's simply what he's doing. Gird your sword on your thigh. Ride out victoriously. He's cheering on the king. And, you know, cheerleaders are the butt of a lot of jokes and, you know, whatever you think about cheerleading is fine. But it does strike me as incredibly humble. There's some essence of humility in being a cheerleader because you're literally cheering on someone else's work. You want to see them succeed. And if they succeed, that's kind of like you succeeding too. That's really humble. And so if you don't, and maybe especially you know you manly men among us, you don't want to be a poet or a cheerleader. And we're going to talk about being a bride in a second, so that'll, <laughs> that'll be hard too. 
But I think, I think the hardest part for, for everyone is that we simply don't want to praise someone else. If you don't want to cheer, maybe you're just being too cynical. And we all know that sort of cynical Grinch, cynical jerk type figure who's never really present in the moment. They're always sort of outside criticizing. They're always trying to tear someone else down or tear the person down. The movie's not that good. Right? One comedian talks about how he's amazed that people can complain about the Wi-Fi speed on an airplane. You're at 30,000 feet and you're on the internet and we're complaining. The one God, the transcendent creator of all things, humbled himself out of his great love. And we can't humble ourselves to praise him. We can't step outside of ourselves for a minute and not try to tear something down. We're too good to be humble? Surely not. And then I want to, I want to look at Luke 7 as this incredible example that we heard read. It's an incredible example about extravagant adoration. And I included the part um, from 31 on, the part before the story of the woman, because you get this sense that they don't know what to do with Jesus. Because at first you have John the Baptist, who is Jesus' predecessor, preaching, this guy's going to come. And John the Baptist is accused as being an ascetic. He's, as, he's accused as being a killjoy. Um, he's not eating bread. He's not drinking wine. Uh, and so they, they accuse him. But then the Son of Man comes eating and drinking. And the crowd say, he's a glutton and a drunkard. A friend of tax collectors and sinners. That's, a, that's amazing that Jesus got accused of that, right? Jesus is accused to be a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And then it feels like Luke is saying, the crowds don't know what to do with Jesus. Let me show you how to praise the Son of Man. One of the Pharisees asked him to dinner. And behold, in verse 37, a woman of the city who was a sinner, which means she's a prostitute, woman of the city, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, standing behind him, she's too ashamed to even come in front of Jesus, standing behind him at his feet weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Dang. Later on, Jesus rebukes Simon. Verse 44, Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, the Pharisee, Do you see this woman? Peter couldn't even see her. Simon. He couldn't even see her. She was invisible. Do you see this woman? You gave me no water for my feet. You're supposed to wash your guest's feet. They're dirty and dusty. Right? They wear sandals in the desert. 
She has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. I think that's one of those passages that we should just meditate on. Just read slowly. Read it again later today. Luke 7, second half. And asking ourselves, because we're told in the Gospel of John that someone upon seeing this says, what a waste. What a waste of oil. When are you wasteful? What are you extravagant with? For me, one sort of silly example is I try to take my kids every every Sunday after church to ice cream. It's an amazing place called Arethusa. Local, don't worry. Um, it's not. It's definitely not cost effective, and it's not healthy, obviously. And it's usually before lunch, so it's even worse. But I want them to see some little picture of the joy of the Sabbath. The joy of celebrating Christ's resurrection. Just an example. Well, he's, he's an extravagant king that deserves extravagant praise, and I'll try to go quickly through this last one. Mark told me to go really long so that he seems short. All right? So you guys can hate me and love him. All right. He's an extravagant king that deserves extravagant praise, and then he's also making us into an extravagant bride. An extravagant bride. You see this in the psalm. Verse 10, the, the poet, the scribe, gets to uh, the to-be bride. Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house. Solomon married a, someone from outside of Israel. But it's also this sort of picture of, of repentance. Focus on the one you are about to marry. And the king will desire your beauty. Do you think God says that about us? The king will desire your beauty. I, I, I think we start to get nervous, a lot of us, around this sort of language. Verse 13, all glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes, she's led to the king with her virgin companions falling behind her. With joy and gladness, they're led along as they enter the palace of the king. The church is being described as all glorious and beautiful and pleasing to God. Psalm 87 is the same thing. Glorious things of thee are spoken. Of thee, of Zion, which is the church, the city of God. Other psalms you can find where the Lord is taking pleasure. We're told in, New, in the New Testament, part of Paul's prayers oftentimes is be fully pleasing to God. And Paul prays for things that can happen. He, he prays based on promises. So we can pray that we can become fully pleasing to God. R.C. Sproul, the, the Reformed theologian, his book on sanctification Sanctification is becoming more and more holy. 
becoming more and more righteous, which sounds so lame to our ears today, it's called pleasing God. Pleasing God. I think part of the why, part of the reason why we get nervous about this language is that we are very focused on the fact that Jesus died for his enemies. And that is true. Jesus died for you when you were still his enemy. A rebellious people running away from the very author. We put the author of life to death. That's how dumb we are. But we're not his enemies anymore if we are in Christ. We're not his enemies anymore. We have been reconciled. Past tense. And so that now, He can look on us and say, I desire you. You, my bride, are beautiful. And I'm making you more and more beautiful. Many commentators note the similarities between this psalm and the Song of Songs, which also we have trouble with. The Song of Songs is this this poetry of a lover and her beloved, getting ready to be married, very sensual at times, says things like, draw me after you, let us run, for your love is better than wine. With great delight I sat in his shadow, his banner over me was love. My beloved is mine, and I am his. And the Puritan, the Puritan, John Owen, wrote an amazing, amazing book called Communion with God. And I would encourage you to read it if you're looking for reading for the new year. A lot of it is quoting the Song of Songs. In one part, he writes this. The chief way by which the saints have communion with the Father is love. Free, undeserved, eternal love. This love the Father pours on the saints. Saints that are see God is full of love to them. They are to receive Him as the one who loves them. They are to be full of praise and thanksgiving to God for His love. They are to show gratitude for His love by living a life which pleases Him. Be fully assured in your hearts that your Father loves you. Have fellowship with the Father in His love. Have no fears or doubts about His love. This is what God wants for us. And listen to this. The great sorrow and burden you can lay on the Father, the greatest unkindness you can do to Him is not to believe that He loves you. What more proof do you want than for Jesus to die and be raised again? What more proof do you want that the Father loves you? This, I can understand this as a parent. Because that's the wor- that's the nightmare I think, of a parent. It's not that they don't listen to you or they forget what you taught them about physics or whatever. It's that at the end of the day, they stop coming to you because they're not quite sure you love them. They're not quite sure you're still for them. That, I think, is the nightmare. That's the worst. We can always know that God loves us in Christ. It points us to, as Paul said, Paul is agonizing over the people he's writing to. And he says, I feel a divine jealousy for you, 
since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Then, of course, we have Revelation 19, the marriage supper of the Lamb. But I do think, um, obviously I don't know this church as well, but if it's anything like our church in New Haven, and even just myself included, I think it's easy for us just to forget the simplicity of the love of God. And that I was never quite sure why Paul would say, he's so he's this brilliant theologian, and he's this brilliant treatise about justification and sanctification. But in 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, he says, these three remain, right? Faith, hope, and love. But faith and hope will go away. Why is that? Why is love the one thing that remains? Have you ever thought about this? It's because in heaven, we're going to be face to face with God. We won't need faith and hope. Heaven is a world of love. It is a world of love. That's what God's preparing us for. That's what he shows us in Jesus. So you do not want to miss the cosmic wedding that we are being prepared for. And I hope that every wedding that you go to, you make sure when the bride first appears to look at the groom. Because the groom's face is a picture, small little picture of God's face when he looks at his bride that he has died for to make beautiful. At the end of the day, we really have to, we can stand up, try to stand up against God in our pride. It's pride or bride, I'm sorry. It's pride or bride. Try to stand up against God in your pride, or you can let God make you more and more into his bride, what you were made for, which is the love and communion of God. Amen? Let's pray. God, how often it is that we forget, that we take for granted, that we even throw around that word love so easily. Do you pray that you would give us a renewed sense and appreciation and gratitude of what it means to be loved by you? That you would make us more and more into uh, the bride that we were meant to be as individuals and as uh, one church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.